Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement podcast brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. What are cold cases and how are they solved? Stuart Summershoe is a cold case detective with the Phoenix, Arizona Police Department. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement podcast, Detective Summershoe walks us through one of the saddest cold cases he's worked in his 24 years of law enforcement, identifying the body of a young girl who was the victim of a homicide. My name is Stuart Summershoe. I work for the City of Phoenix Police Department. I am a detective with the Missing and Unidentified Persons Unit. I got into law enforcement kind of a, a strange path. I graduated college with an English major, and I ended up managing a bookstore. And I was monumentally bored by that. It was the same thing every day, in and out. So my brother chose a different path, and he actually ended up becoming a um, patrol officer in Los Angeles. So I, I went to visit him and uh, did a couple ride-alongs and just really got hooked by it, just the, the variety, the, the, the difference of calls that you go to and just the, you know, the excitement of it all kind of drew me to it. So after that, I decided I was going to move into that career path. And at the time I was living in Pennsylvania. So I ended up going through a police academy in Pennsylvania to get what they call Act 120 certified, which is a certification you need to to work for police departments there. So I I was uh, going through uh, the testing process for various departments there. And my brother, in the meantime, had left Los Angeles and came to Phoenix Police Department. And he told me that, hey, they're hiring out here. And in that particular year, we were having one of our worst winters we ever had in Pennsylvania. And I was very tired of snow and cold. So I decided to to come out to Phoenix and test. And I think I tested in January of um, 1996. And by July, I was in the police academy. My career path has been kind of uh, a straight line, really. I haven't had a lot of side ventures. I worked patrol for uh, 12 years, and uh, basically uh, I worked South Phoenix patrol, mostly third shift. And then for about three years, I was a field training officer. After that, I tested for a detective position in the the missing persons unit, and I I joined that in the end of 2007. And that's where I've been since. A missing person unit, we handle all the incoming missing person cases, all the cases involving unidentified remains. So we are a very busy unit. We get about uh, 7,000 cases a year of, of missing persons. And those those cases range all across the board. You, you have a vast majority of them are runaways or people who have willfully gone missing but there's a smaller percentage of cases where people have met with foul play and we haven't found a body or a scene yet. And so then you're, you're kind of uh, dealing with a challenging obstacle of, of proving a homicide has occurred in addition to proving who did it. 
So those are some of the, the most challenging cases I think you can deal with as a law enforcement officer because you're, you're missing the basic element of a crime, a body. And so I, I find those very challenging and, and interesting. And like I said, our cases range from all different demographics of, of society, the very rich, the very poor, all different backgrounds. So you really get a, a taste of a lot of different segments of society and, you know, uh, a variety of people. So it, it's pretty interesting. I like to focus on the cold cases. We have cases going back to the 60s, and some of those are very interesting cases. So that's kind of what I mainly do now is I work with cold cases involving missing and unidentified persons. The definition of a cold case is kind of fluid. Traditionally, it's a case that's more than a year old where all leads have been exhausted. So that's basically the definition. But, you know, we have missing person cases that come in where somebody reports their loved one is missing where they haven't seen them in years. And so sometimes you have a cold case that comes in right away, you know, where you're, it's just from the start, it's, it's so old that it basically by definition is a cold case. So there's a, a lot of variety in these kind of cases and, and different routes of investigation that you do. The challenges of a cold case are many. A lot of times you're reconstructing things that have happened long ago I say sometimes as a cold case detective, you're kind of like an archaeologist where you're you're trying to find, rebuild a case sometimes because, you know, a lot of these cases, they were just police reports. So a lot of documentation outside of that is not preserved. So, I, I mean, I, I've spent time in cold cases going to the library to look at old newspaper articles to try to find witnesses and, and information about a case. I use Ancestry.com. I use Newspapers.com just trying to gather information. And the challenges you face, time can be an enemy in these cases in that you have witnesses that pass away, you have suspects that pass away, memories fade, and sometimes evidence gets lost or destroyed, even though there's not a lot of evidence in missing person cases. Those are some of the the major challenges that you have. The way I investigate a cold case is, is just kind of my own system I have. I generally like to sit down with the whole case file and I'll just read it from beginning to end without you know, taking any notes or anything. I'll just read it to get a sense of what the case is and then what's still there. And then I'll start back from the beginning and I usually have a, a notepad with me and that's when I'll start taking notes of things that... I think need to be followed up on or avenues of investigation that you know could be followed. So it, it's always a good idea, I think, to, to read a cold case from beginning to end at least two times, if not more than that. Because there's a lot of details, a lot of information that you may not glean from a first reading. And you also have to kind of like step back from an investigation because a lot of these cases, there, there are prejudices or biases that sometimes creep in, and that's how human beings are. Sometimes an investigator will get the blinders as they're following a case and not really see the path that they should have followed. So it's always good to step back and just kind of look at the case with fresh eyes and, and see, hopefully, things that weren't noticed before. When, when we look at a cold case, I, I often tell people that cold cases are, are really just their failures. They're and, and it should not reflect badly upon the, the original investigator. There's many reasons why a case isn't solved. 
And you don't see the wins or the successes of that detective because those cases are solved. They're not a cold case. So there's many reasons why a case didn't resolve. And, you know, so I always try to not point fingers or or lay blame upon a case from a prior investigator, because that's a a fool's game, because you're not really going to solve anything. It just creates a lot of anger, and, and you're just basically, you have to, you know, play with the cards that you're dealt in a cold case. So you learn very quickly, like, hey, what they did in the 1980s and, and 1990s, you know, is, is a different process than what we would do in the 2000s. You know, DNA wasn't even a consideration back in some of these old cases. So you really can't get upset because they were doing what they knew was the best way to do something. So you, you try to just focus on what you can solve and what you can improve upon. What drives cold cases are, are two things changes in technology, and then changes in relationships. Now, missing person cases are unique in that usually we don't have a lot of evidence that technology can really be retested upon. We're dealing with an absence of evidence in missing persons. So you're not, you don't have a body, you don't have a scene, you don't have the, the traditional elements that drive other cold cases. You know, homicide cold cases and sex crime cold cases are really evidence-driven. That's where you have uh, a piece of evidence that can be looked at again, can be retested, maybe get a DNA profile of an offender, and that's what drives those cases. With missing person cases, we spend a lot of time re-interviewing witnesses, trying to see if there's new information, if old alliances have, are no longer valid. You know, an ex-wife is an excellent source of information in, in a cold case. So those are the things we try to focus on. Well, the brave new frontier for cold cases is uh, forensic genealogy, and I use that in a number of my unidentified cases. A side note of all this is that we have a tremendous number of unidentified bodies in the United States. It's estimated we have 40,000 unidentified bodies in the United States. Uh, It's been called the, the nation's silent mass disaster. In Arizona, we have a lot. We have some of the highest in the nation. We have almost 2,000 unidentified bodies. And the reason for that is probably twofold. One is that we're close to the border. We have a lot of people crossing the deserts and, and dying. But also that it's just our environmental factors of being in a desert that, that rapidly degrades a body. So it turns skeletal really quick, and that makes identifying a body challenging. So forensic genealogy is a new investigative tool that can be used in these cases. And and what that is, is where we take a DNA profile, and this has been used in other cases that have made, you know, news, the Golden State Killer, uh, the Canal Murder here in Phoenix, that sort of thing. And what happens is that you take a profile of um, a suspect, or usually in my case, it's an unidentified victim, and you upload it to some of the databases that people are using for genealogy research like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and genealogists will then trace and look for family members that may be related to your offender or victim. And through that, we are able to make uh, connections and then identify victims, and that's how I use it. So it's opened a lot of doors in these cases, and I think that's going to be the the wave of the future. That's how we're going to resolve a lot of these cold cases. I, I think it's as a significant and important advancement in um, investigations as DNA was originally. 
I'm towards the end of my career. So I, you kind of, at some point you look back and you say, well, what did I do? What did I accomplish? And I mean, there's, there's one case that I often look back at that I was part of that I'm proud of. So this case goes all the way back to May of 1992, and it involves a, a young female who was murdered. And what started this case is that there was a young girl named Brandy Myers who went missing in May of 1992. She was walking through a neighborhood and trying to collect money for school book drive. So she disappeared and it created this massive search effort to find Brandy. And as part of that search effort, another body was found in the desert in northern Arizona. And the person who found this body was riding his ATV in this remote desert area north of Phoenix. And he had stopped next to a trash pile and he had found a pair of glasses and he was just kind of poking around some of the trash pile there. And then he started to smell a really bad smell. And it was at that time that he found the partial skeletal remains of, of a young female. And uh, Brandy Myers is all over the news as a missing female. He thought he had found Brandy Myers. So this person who found the body had a misdemeanor warrant for his arrest. So he didn't want to talk to the police directly, but he rushes home and tells his roommates, oh, I think I found Brandy Myers. And they're like, well, you need to call the police then. So he calls the police anonymously. And coincidentally, while this is all going on, there was a a convention in Phoenix of search dogs, and they were actually being utilized in the Brandy Myers search. So they took the search dogs out to where he was saying the body was found. Eventually, they found the body. So this body, like I said, was mostly skeletal. She was clothed, and she had been strangled. And so they, they quickly determined it wasn't Brandy Myers based on the decomposition, because this was the day after Brandy uh, went missing. But they didn't know who this female was. So they checked missing person reports didn't find any matches. And the investigators back then did everything they could to identify this female. They, she was autopsied. And uh, an anthropologist analyzed her remains and found that she was a young female. They estimated between uh, 12 and 16 years old. And they believed that she was white based on the, the morphology of her skeleton. Again, it was believed she was very young. She still had some of her baby teeth in her mouth. So uh, based on that, they, they created a composite sketch and they released it to the media and uh, hoping that somebody would come forward and say, hey, I know who the, that girl is. And nobody came forward. And so this went on for years and the, the case remained open. Uh, it was put on America's Most Wanted. It was released throughout the, um, the media as much as they could. When the internet came into effect, it was put on the internet, uh, the Doe Network, her DNA profile was uploaded in the CODIS and there was no matches or anything like that. So it, it remains, basically became a cold case where we had a unidentified victim of a, a young girl. So in 2011, I was working missing persons and my emphasis was just on missing persons. And I started became interested in some of the unidentified cases that we had within our police department. So I went to my supervisor, I said, you know, look at all these cases that we have and a lot of them weren't really being worked on, you know, because there's new, always new cases coming in. So I kind of pitched the idea that, hey, this is something we should be working on. And we became from the missing person unit, we became the missing and unidentified persons unit. And the reason for that is every unidentified person to me is a missing person. There's somebody out there who's missing this person. 
So my boss, Brian Chapman, was I'd given him a stack of some of these cases, and he picked up uh, this particular case from 1992, and he said, well, if nothing else, we're going to solve this case. And I had already reviewed the case. I was like, oh, I don't know. That one's going to be tough. We just kind of restarted that whole case and worked on it. And the persistent question that we had was, why, why don't we have a matching missing person or missing juvenile report on this young girl? There was nothing there. So that was odd. So I had a couple of theories about that. One theory was that this girl was murdered by her family, which happens. So that family probably would not want to report their daughter missing if they had killed her. Second theory was that maybe there was an error, a administrative error where a missing report, missing person report was closed when it shouldn't have been closed. And so the third theory was that by this time I had been doing missing persons for a while. So I knew there was a, a category and it's a horrible phrase, but there is the, what they sometimes call a throwaway kid. And these are kids who end up in the system, basically. They are abandoned by their parents. They are taken away from their parents. And they end up going into the uh, care of child protective services uh, and the foster homes, that sort of thing. And it's really, really easy for these kids to kind of fall between the cracks because there's not a lot of people looking out for them. So that was the third theory is that maybe she's one of these kids and somehow she fell between the cracks. So with these theories, we decided to pull a list of closed missing juvenile reports. And the reason we did that is that we know that there's a, a certain pattern to a, a lot of these kids, and it's a sad pattern is what happens. A lot of these kids, you'll, you'll see they get taken out of their home for whatever reason, for child abuse, sexual abuse, and that sort of thing. And then they get placed in a foster home or a group home and that sort of thing. And then you start seeing like little episodes of criminality, and a lot of them are just street survival crimes, shoplifting, theft, that sort of thing, sometimes prostitution. And often after that, the sad pattern is they just start running away all the time. And you know, a lot of that just leads to addiction, to a lot of other issues. So that's the, the unfortunate flowchart pattern that you see in a lot of these cases. So that's, that's why we grabbed a listing of closed missing juvenile reports. And we asked for a listing of all reports, I think I went from 1991 up to 1993, involving all females of a particular height and age. And I ended up getting a list of 1,600 reports, which is a lot of reports. And it becomes a very tedious process of just going through those reports and running background checks on each person in those reports. And what we're looking for was proof of life after May of 1992. So if a, a juvenile was arrested sometime after that, we knew that they weren't our Jane Doe, or if they had an ID issued to them, or there was some other report that we could say definitively that they are alive after May of 1992, they were crossed off the list. So this took a long time going through all these reports and, and checking all these people. So as we would go through the list, we would have some that we, we couldn't immediately cross off. We, we knew there'd have to be more research. We have to find things. So we made it through the, the 1,600 reports, and we had probably a little less than 100 uh, that were question marks on the list. 
So I started back at the beginning of the list, and one of the first names that I encountered had a question mark next to it was a um, 16-year-old girl named Shannon Almock. Shannon was kind of the, the definition of a chronic runaway. She had been reported missing at least 40 times in NCIC as a missing juvenile. And her life story is one of the, the saddest I've encountered in my 24 years of doing this. Shannon had been born to a woman who was raped, and so she was product of a rape. And so that woman raised her for a couple of years and realized that she wasn't capable of raising this child, so she gave her up for adoption or gave her over to, to Child Protective Services so she could be adopted. And Shannon was adopted. And then that family took care of her for up till she was 12 years old. Shannon had a lot of behavioral issues, a lot of problems. She was very disruptive. So that family basically decided they, they weren't able to take care of her anymore. And they, they gave her back to Child Protective Services. So that really kicked off a whole tumultuous time in Shannon's life where she is running away constantly and in and out of the system. And again, we saw the very sad pattern of you know, her getting arrested a few times. And then she ends up actually going to a juvenile detention center for a time in the beginning of 1992. So in April of 1992, Shannon was released from the detention center, given back to Child Protective Services, who then placed her in a foster home. And then she ran away from that foster home. But unfortunately, when she ran away from that foster home, she wasn't reported missing. And she was never listed with law enforcement in that final runaway as a missing juvenile. So basically, there was nobody looking for Shannon. So when I found that pattern of, of reports and some other details, it made me think that this Jane Doe was Shannon. So then the challenge became of how do we prove that this, this Jane Doe is Shannon? So we were able to eventually track down her biological mother, who gave her up for adoption and got a DNA sample from her. So I, I rushed it to the lab, and the lab technician, uh, her name's Kelly Merwin, had actually been working on this case for years, and she actually had the composite sketch on her desk because she had taken such an interest in the case. So she did a, a rush job on the, the DNA comparison, and within days, we did identify the Jane Doe as Shannon. So that was 19 years of her being a Jane Doe, of nobody knowing who she was. So as part of the, the process of identifying her, we had exhumed her from her grave where she had been buried as a Jane Doe for, for 19 years. So once we identified Shannon, we worked with a local church and basically we gave her a proper funeral and a proper send-off. We got her a headstone, which had her name and her date of birth and date of death. And we have a little phrase in there, once I was lost, but now I am found. And so Shannon, who had this sad, tumultuous life where she didn't really have a home, at least we, we wanted to give her a home when she in, in death. And so we were able to do that. So, so I look back at my career of 24 years and giving Shannon her name back was an accomplishment that I'm proud of, at least I can say I did that in, in my, my job as law enforcement. The talents or skills of cold case detective, the attributes 
or, or many. You really have to be a jack of many trades. You have to be very self-driven and you kind of have to have that fire in your belly to want to get justice and resolve these cases because they can be very frustrating. And the, the skills that you're, you're going to need are you really have to have an ability to, to write well. You have to be able to communicate well. That's essential. I mean, you're, a lot of times in these cases, you, you have a suspect identified and you, you'll get one shot at talking to them again. And you will have to have the ability to talk to somebody for hours and hours and get them to confess to a homicide and basically tell you something that's going to lock them away for the rest of their life. So that, that takes a lot of communication skills and uh, interview skills and interrogation skills. But the, the other part of it, like I mentioned before, it's very much you feel like an archaeologist sometimes. You have to be able to be able to do research, find things, know where to look for things, and recreate things from the past. To go into law enforcement, you have to have a lot of skills. And I think a lot of people sometimes go into law enforcement with the idea that it's gunfights and car chases and action like, like the movies. The reality is that you have to really have good communication skills, both writing and verbal, because you're going to spend a lot of time writing and you're going to spend a lot of time talking to people. So those skills are, are really essential. I've been doing this for 24 years, and I've been in one gunfight. I've been in a few car chases, but I've spent a lot more time writing police reports and interviewing people than, than those things. So that's the things I would tell people to focus on and develop those skills. I went to college for English, and that has helped me a lot in being able to write uh, good reports, write search warrants, that sort of thing. To become a cold case detective, it's not something you're going to do right away. Typically, cold case detectives are more of your seasoned uh, detectives. People have been doing it for a lot of years. And so if you want to do that, and a lot of people do, a lot of people come in a job, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to do your job. I'm like, well, you, you, there's a lot of things you have to do before that. And I always tell people, you know, being a patrol officer is one of the best schools that you can be to prepare yourself for investigations and cold case work. Just interacting with people and talking to people and developing those skills of being able to talk to somebody of any background and get them to confess things to you will help you immensely in, in this job. And just to get that basic foundation of life experience will assist you. So if you go into law enforcement, have a goal with what you want to do and then start developing those, those talents and those skills. And most police departments will assist you in that. They, they want to develop their employees so they can assume these positions. So you know, whatever training the department offers, take it. Uh, most of it is free and you can really develop your resume and your ability to do these jobs because these jobs will open. I, like I said, I'm near the end of my career. You know, in a few years, I'll be retiring. So someone's got to take my spot. So I hope it's somebody who's who's skilled and sharper than I am and that can solve the cases that I didn't solve. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Thanks for listening.